0: Good morning, ABC family. So good to be gathered with you together in the room this morning, worshiping Jesus and singing these amazing Christmas hymns. Greetings to our online community. We're really glad you're tuning in. And our prayer is for God's richest blessing over you, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing. And we just pause and we say, thank you, Jesus, that we can come and worship freely this morning, right? My name is Gerald, I'm one of the pastors here, and I love this church. I love Atascadero Bible Church, and I love America, because we have freedom to get up and gather. None of us were hindered in any way other than by maybe what our bodies were saying that we can't do, right? I mean, we live in a culture of ease. We live in a culture of ease. I got up this morning and I pushed go on my automatic coffee maker, and it made me coffee. Some of you have these robotic backrooms that when, when you're sleeping, your vacuum rooms around and cleans your floors for you, right? We even have a, a company that um, makes this thing called an easy button because we like to do things the easiest way. Oftentimes in our house, you'll hear one of two things. Why, why did you do it that way? And the answer is, it was just easier to do it that way, right? We look for life hacks. We look for ways to make life easier because life in this fallen world is really hard. And we're in a season now where there's three generations living on our property with us. And and my five-year-old grandson is getting to that stage where his parents are asking him to do some things that he doesn't want to do. And some of those things are hard, like picking up toys, right? And, And the mantra is, I can do hard things. We have to, like, coach ourselves through that, and maybe, maybe you understand that. And here's the bottom line. I think you all know this. It's easier to do hard things when you know somebody's in it with you, right? I'm thinking back to when I was seven years old, and that day came when my dad decided that I would join the workforce on the farm and begin to rake hay in the hay fields for him. So seven years old, I climb up onto this 1950 model John Deere G tractor and I begin looking at the overwhelming details. Now, by today's standards, that thing was very simple, right? It had a key, a couple of gauges. But dad shows me, this is how you start it. This is the throttle. When you push this lever forward, it goes faster. When you pull it backward, it goes slower. This is the clutch. It's on the right-hand side. It's a hand clutch. When you push that clutch forward, the wheels begin to move. When you pull that clutch back, which, by the way, took two hands and all the might I had as a seven-year-old to get that thing to disengage. But that's how you get the tractor to stop. Brakes left and right, right? And I'm looking at this, and I go, I don't think I can do it. And then Dad said, I'll go with you on the first round. And he did. He rode with me, and he showed me that this impossible task was actually something that I could do. And he gave me the courage by being there with me in it. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know, it's easier to do hard things when you have somebody in it with you. And here we turn to our final chapter of Matthew 28. We are now, after two years, bringing the the Gospel of Matthew to a close. And here, once again, for the third week in a row, we are going to read the Great Commission passage. And we are going to hear Jesus promise his presence with us as we face this hard and impossible task of fulfilling the Great Commission. In fact, I'm confident that God has wired us to need help from outside ourselves in order to do the right thing. And so today, that's what we're going to hear from Jesus is his promise to be with us and to help us as we face the Great Commission. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We'll begin reading at verse 16. And before we read, let's pause and pray. Father, Son, Spirit, we tune our ears to your voice. We acknowledge your presence here with us. And we humbly ask that you would take these words that you inspired, that you have preserved, and that we're about to read out loud again, you would take those words and cause them to land on our hearts for what they truly are, the inspired words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who perfectly and beautifully reveals his will for us and comforts us as we are sobered by his will. So tune our ears to your voice and have your way in our midst this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here at Christmas season, we are reminded that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And biblically, there are three ways that we can consider Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, and they are the points on your outline. And we're not going to spend much time on points one and two this morning, but we'll spend the bulk of our time on point three. Point one is this. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, as the suffering servant. So we remember that in in every Advent, we read Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, that says, Behold... The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, right? Given hundreds of years before Jesus' humble birth. So when Mary conceives and delivers this child in the humble stable of Bethlehem, that was the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh and being born, being, becoming God with us as a human. John wrote about it in this way in his gospel, and you heard it read this morning in our worship set. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, John continues, and he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So every Advent, every Christmas, we are preparing to worship Jesus As Emmanuel, God with us, the second person of the Trinity who takes on flesh and is humbly born in Bethlehem. He is the one who is the suffering servant of whom Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians as he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And when we think about Jesus in his first advent, we think of him as the eternal word who humbly took on flesh, who selflessly lived a sinless life and ultimately died for our sins. He truly is that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Since then, Jesus has raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is seated there at the right hand of the Father. He's seated, meaning the work of salvation is complete. He meant what he said on the cross. It is finished. There's no more work for him to do. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father because that is the place of honor. Because he has humbly and obediently fulfilled the role that God the Father gave him to fulfill as the suffering servant in his first advent. Now we look forward to his return, his second advent, when Jesus comes and returns as righteous judge. I grew up in a Lutheran church. That was a church that had a regular liturgy, and part of the liturgy every week was the recitation of either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. If you're not familiar, creeds are just these simple, um, complex, and terribly dense <laughs> Uh, doctrinal statements that help us confess things as true. They take all of Scripture and they boil it down to the bare essence. And the Nicene Creed, which was put together in the year 325, has this to say about Jesus. It says, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So we look forward to the return of Jesus, and when he comes, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Second advent comes as righteous judge. And then it says, and his kingdom will have no end. Eternity. Jesus on the throne everything made right. So Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he comes as the righteous judge. And we can think of him in that way as being Emmanuel, or God with us, as the resurrected and exalted Christ who will return to judge the living and the dead. So when Jesus comes, he doesn't come back as the lamb like the first advent when he came as the lamb of God, the suffering servant. This time he comes back. He is the lion of Judah who alone is able to judge all mankind in righteousness. He will literally be God with us on judgment day. Try to imagine that day, if you will. You find yourself at the end of the age, either the end of your life or the end of the age, standing before a holy God. And the books are opened, and the list of deeds read. And every careless word that you have ever said is spoken. And you begin to hang your head in shame. But Jesus is next to you, and he says, Father, I know him. I know her. She is one of my disciples. She's one of those that you gave me from out of the world. And all the things that you just read are some of the things for which I died on the cross. And then you hear, well done. Enter into the joy of your salvation. And all the sin has been wiped away and paid for perfectly by your substitute, Jesus the Christ, who is your advocate. And then you recognize that your neighbor is next in line, and as the books are open, and as the list of deeds are read, and as he or she hangs his or her head in shame, you recognize, oh, no, Jesus is not standing next to that one. And that one ultimately at the end hears, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're cast into the lake of fire and that reality of Jesus on judgment day is the motivation for us to obey the Great Commission that is why we feel the need to go and make disciples of all nations that is exactly why we do that and neither of these Jesus as the lamb or Jesus as the lion Neither of these are what Matthew has in mind here in Matthew 28 when he talks about Emmanuel, God being with us. The third way that we think about Jesus being God with us is through the indwelling Spirit. The scriptures make it so clear that even though Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, that God is still with us as the Spirit of Christ who comforts us with his presence and encourages us with his power so that we can obey God's commands. Now I want us to remember the context in which he gives this promise. Again, verse 20 starts with teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And it's a sobering thing, right? To recognize that these are commands, we are to go to make disciples of all nations. And as we make disciples, those disciples, we are baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we're teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. That's mission impossible. How do you make disciples of every nation, and how do you teach every disciple to obey everything that Jesus has commanded? We hang our head in defeat, and we say, this is humanly impossible. And then we remember our neighbor. and we swallow hard and we say, "Well, God, can you empower me to be obedient for that one?" And it's precisely into our weakness, precisely into our fear, into our timidity that Jesus speaks his promise. And he lets look closely at what he says. He says, "Behold." Some of your translations say, "And lo," Other translations say, surely. This word here at the beginning of the sentence, at the beginning of the promise, is a word that's designed to get your attention. It's designed to, like, shake you awake. So when you are in a crowd of people and you are the one who needs to announce what that crowd of people will be doing next, what do you do to get their attention? (laughs) You whistle? Somehow you get their attention, right? And that's what this word, behold, is doing. Jesus is saying, listen up. What I'm about to tell you, you need to hear. In fact, it's going to be the key to your life. So Jesus says, behold, look. And then he says, I am with you. I, the one who has all authority, like we heard two weeks ago. He has the authority to create. He has the authority to save. He has the authority to sustain. This is the one who is promising that he is with you. This is the one who has the authority to give you that audacious command to go and make disciples of all nations. This one, with that authority, is the one who looks you in the eye and says, I am with you always. And why? Because he knows we need somebody with us when we need to do something hard. You realize that God has a habit of doing this, right? He gives a mission impossible command to his people. The people resist, and then he promises, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna tell you three stories of God doing this. He did it with Moses, he did it with Joshua. Okay, so think back to the book of Exodus. We see there in Exodus three, Moses is a shepherd. He's shepherding a flock of sheep, and he wanders upon the Mount of Horeb. And there at Horeb, he glances to the side and he sees a bush that's on fire. And despite being on fire, it is not being consumed. So he says, I'm going to go over there and see what's going on with this bush. As he gets over there, he hears the voice of God speaking to him. And God says, Moses, take your sandals off. You're standing on holy ground. So Moses removes his sandals. And then Jesus, or God, speaks to him and he gives him his mission. He says, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses says, wait a minute. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I to do that? I think you got the wrong guy. And God then promises in the next words, but... I will be with you. And if you've read the book of Exodus, you know how the story goes. Moses eventually accepts his commission. He goes down to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. That's what the Most High God says. And it takes a series of painful events, the ten plagues, to finally convince Pharaoh, yep, I need to let God's people go. So they walk out of Egypt carrying all the jewelry, all the gold, all the precious metals of Egypt with them. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. And now the people of Israel find themselves between the proverbial rock and a hard place, only this time it's the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army pursuing them on chariots. And at the moment that they think they're going to die, God intervenes. He parts the Red Sea and the nation of Israel walks through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then the Pharaoh's army on chariots pursues them on that dry ground and as the last Israelite pulls up onto the beach, the waters come and Pharaoh's army is drowned in the sea. God made true to his promise. He was with them and he showed up in some pretty mighty ways to empower his obedience to do what he had commissioned him to do. Story number one. Second story is Joshua. For reasons we won't go into detail, but it was Moses' disobedience that prevents Moses from taking the people of Israel into the Promised Land. He dies there in the wilderness, and then God shows up, and he speaks to Joshua. And he says this in Joshua chapter 1, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. And at this time, we don't hear Joshua protest verbally, but it's like God can read his mind because he keeps speaking to him, be strong, Joshua, be strong, be courageous. This book of the law that I've given you through Moses, don't depart from it, don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right, but be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for only then will you have success. And then he promises him, and I will be with you. And if you've read the book of Joshua, you know God was with Joshua. When it came time to cross the Jordan, once again, the waters parted. Israel walked through the Jordan River on dry ground. Then their next marching order was to go march around. That was marching order. That's punny. Marching order? to march around the city of Jericho seven times, and then the walls fell down, right? God showed up. Nobody in the nation of Israel made those walls fall down. God showed up. And again, the pattern of God's leadership plan is established, and the pattern goes like this. God gives a command that's humanly impossible to fulfill, and his people that receive that command resist. They come up with excuses why they could never do that Thirdly, God promises his presence. And finally, the person has success as they depend on God to empower their obedience. The person only has success as they depend on God to empower their obedience. And that, church, is what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 28. He gives his church, us, our mission impossible. Go make disciples of all nations. And we swallow hard and we go, God, I could never do that. I'm not bold. I'm not able to go. I've got responsibility X, Y, Z. I don't even know the Bible well enough to help shepherd my own soul. How am I supposed to tell somebody else about Jesus? And the list of excuses goes on and on and on. And it's precisely into these excuses, into this resistance, that Jesus promises, look, I am with you always to the end of the age. And once again, here we are, church, as the pattern indicates we will only have success in fulfilling or obeying this commission as we depend on God to empower our obedience. We need to depend on God to empower our obedience. And why do we need to hear this promise? Why do we need to hear Jesus Grab us by the shoulders, look us in the eye, and say, I am with you always. We need to hear this promise for two reasons. We need his comfort, and secondly, we need his courage. We need comfort from his presence. Accepting this mission to make disciples of all nations is a sobering thing. It strikes fear in our hearts if we're honest, and it's humanly impossible And just like we find comfort when someone is with us when we're faced with doing a hard thing, Jesus knows that we need input and we need support from outside of ourselves in order to face this hard thing we call the Great Commission. We need to know that God is with us in this as we face it. And I want us to look real close at the grammar of what Jesus is saying here because that is key to us understanding the depth and the magnitude of this promise. If you're going to take word from word and go Greek word to English word, Greek word to English word, it goes like this I, with you, I am. And no, this is not Jesus trying to imitate Yoda. <laughs> with you, I am. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. He is using grammar in the original Greek language to emphasize that he is the one who's with us. That First-person pronoun, I, unnecessary. The first-person pronoun is baked into the verb, I am. Amy is the Greek word. Jesus is saying, I am the one who is with you. That's for emphasis. He is the one, the one with all authority. He is the one who is with us. And then that with you that's right in between the pronoun and the verb is plural. He's promising to be with all y'all. Not just the pastors, not just the ministry directors, not just the volunteer Bible study leaders. Jesus is promising that he is with you. Every one of you. And then he says, I am. It's the present tense. It's, it's the indicative. This is a state of reality. I am with you. He's not promising to be with us at some point in the future. He's saying, I am with you now. So that when we face the difficulties of our earthly life, we need to feel the comfort of God's presence. When we're faced with the impossible, when we're stressed, when we're weak, when we're compromised, when we're lonely, when we're sick, that is when we feel the need for comfort. And the question is always, to what or to whom will you turn for comfort? Will you accept Jesus' offer to turn to him, trusting that he is willing and able to comfort you with your presence? Or will you turn to the screen and try to escape? Will you turn to the bottle or that forbidden relationship? To what or to whom do you turn when you are faced with stress and scary circumstances? That is always the question. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say we can find comfort in our stress when we turn to Jesus. And others of you are like, I'm not sure I get that. Lorelei Calm is a beloved sister of the ABC family. She was our real estate agent that helped us find our home when we moved up here. And she, in this last year, became terribly sick. And she has a beautiful testimony for us of how the Jesus was present with her and comforted her. Let's listen
1: to Lorelai. So yeah, earlier this year, I was very ill. I've never been that ill before. And I am so grateful now on this side of that illness to be part of a church that prays because the church prayed for me and I could feel those prayers. I was at home in bed, very fragile, very ill. I've never been that ill before. And it was great to know that people were praying for me. I felt those prayers. I felt the power of the prayers. And I'm so glad to be past that illness. And yet, I'm grateful for it because I was able to experience God's spirit and the presence of God in a way that I never could have experienced any other way by being so fragile, scared, ill and just weak, I was able to feel God's presence in a tangible way that I never could feel before. The worst of the few nights, I could feel him singing over me and holding me and just rejoicing over me. And there was great joy in the midst of my pain. And it changed me. It caused me to cleave to him more, just to know him as Emmanuel, God with me. And that moment, those precious days earlier this year, I miss. I wish I could go back in some ways because I was so able to feel him in my life and him caring for me as a father, holding me by his righteous right hand and taking care of me in a very tangible way.
0: Wow. Obviously, she's healthy. She recovered, right? And in her strength, she says, I miss being sick because of how near Jesus was and how much he comforted me. That's what we're talking about. When we're at our worst days, when we're feeling the weakest, the most impotent, that's when Jesus loves to show up and comfort his people. And I also heard her say that that was in some way in her mind linked to you all praying for her. So I want you to be encouraged, people who are praying for one another, when we pray, God shows up like that sometimes. It is beautiful. We need comfort from the presence of Jesus. Secondly, we need courage from Jesus' power. We are prone to fear and we always need courage, which is probably why God has put in the Bible 365 times, don't fear. Don't be afraid. It says that one day for every year or one, one time for every day of the year, right? Apparently, we need to hear it. Don't. Fear, because courage comes from God's presence. He has the power to create, the power to save, the power to sustain. And we need God's power if we're going to have any success in fulfilling this thing we call the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. We need God's power for two reasons. One, the people we are going to reach are dead. They're spiritually dead. And there's no human, you or me or anybody else, who has the power to make somebody spiritually alive. Only God can do that. So the reason we believe that Jesus is coming back, right, and when he comes back, he comes back as righteous judge, and that provides the motivation for us to go out and make disciples. And the way we make disciples is by proclaiming Christ, telling people that he came to earth, that he lived a sinless life, He laid that sinless life down on Calvary's cross, shedding his blood, making perfect payment for sins, and he rose again victorious over the grave, and he promises forgiveness to whoever believes in him. Forgiveness and a filling of the Holy Spirit to empower our obedience. We need God's power because we cannot convert a dead soul. Only God can do that. So our job is the eyewitness account. This is what Jesus has done and is doing in my life. I want you to hear it. And then we trust God to make that person alive in Christ. It's as simple as that. We need God's power because that person is dead and only God can make them live. Secondly, we need God's power because even once we're in Christ, we don't have the strength in ourselves, humanly speaking, to wage the war that the flesh is waging against us. There is a battle that continues between the Holy Spirit and the inordinate desires of our flesh. And we need divine power in order to wage that war faithfully. Paul talks about it this way in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So there we have it, our addictions, our idols, the things to which we tend to turn for comfort, those are all strongholds that only divine power can break. And this is why principle number two in Celebrate Recovery is the key to living. Principle number two says this, earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, like he cares for me, and that he alone has the power to help me recover. Jesus is the power that gives anybody freedom from any of their addictions, whether it's chemical or codependency, people-pleasing. Only Jesus has the power to give us freedom from our sin. Paul talks about it this way in Galatians 5. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Even once we come to faith in Jesus, even once we are miraculously made alive together in Christ through faith, there's a cosmic war that goes on inside of each one of us between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Holy Spirit. And that is a battle that requires divine power. Paul David Tripp has written a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. This is a book that we're going through as um, elders and staff this year. And he he says it this way, talking about this war. He says, we have been given the warrior spirit. Why this name? Because the Holy Spirit who dwells in us fights on our behalf. Paul is literally saying here that the spirit is an adversary who stands opposed to the sinful nature. God knew that our natures are so weak and the conflict within so powerful that He could not leave us to ourselves. He sent His Spirit to literally live inside of us so that by His power we would be able to defeat the passions and the desires of our sinful nature. God knows what we need and He makes perfect provision through the indwelling Holy Spirit that gives us the power. To overcome the sinful passions of the sinful nature. So church, we need comfort from Jesus' presence and we need courage from his power so that we can accept our mission impossible, so that we can go and make disciples. That's why Jesus' promise here is key to our life, key to our living, key to our obedience. We will only have success to the degree that you and I rely on God to empower our obedience. Let me repeat that. We will only have success to the degree that you and I rely on God to empower our obedience. We need him. So the question comes, how long can I expect Jesus' promise to be in effect? He says, look, I'm with you always literally all the days. And I love that, all the days, because it tells me two things. It tells me he is with me day by day. As long as it's called today, I can bank on Jesus' promise that he is with me. And he said he's with me all the days. That means no matter how many days there are between now and the return of Jesus, he's promised never to leave me, never to forsake me. He is with me all the days, every last one of them. And in this next clause, Jesus says to the completion of the age or to the end of the age. That means he's committed to be with us and empower our obedience right through the completion of the Great Commission, right through that day when he does come back as righteous judge. To the end of the age. Where does Jesus use that sort of verbiage? Where does he talk about the close or the end of the age? It's a couple of places here in Matthew 1 and 13, through all those parables, he's, he's talking about the end of the age where the angels come and they sort all causes of evil into one thing and, and the righteous into another. Jesus himself talks about it in Matthew 24. The disciples come and ask him, when will these things be? What's the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And through the chapter, Jesus continues to answer, and he says, concerning the day and the hour, nobody knows, therefore you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Who then is that faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And here in in Jesus' answer, This servant who's been placed over the house to give them their food at the proper time is an analogy, it's a picture, it's a word picture, it's an illustration of us, the church, making disciples, seeking to fulfill our unique role in this thing we call the Great Commission. And the testimony of Scripture, church, is that things are going to go from bad to worse. People will go from bad to worse. That's 2 Timothy which means that today is the easiest day to be a Christian. It's only going to be harder from this point forward. Today is the easiest day to stand for truth in the midst of a culture that's been deceived by lies. It will never be easier to take your stand with and for Jesus and step out in faith and play that role that he has for you and for me to make in making disciples. It will never be easier. So church, we need to count the cost. We need to be ready. We may need a course correct. This morning I ended up reading the, the letters to the churches in the opening chapters of Revelation. And there were seven letters there to seven churches, right? And Jesus writes to them, and every one of them needed a course correct. And I was haunted by the words, Let him who hear listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. I'm wondering what kind of a course correct do you and I need this morning? What is the Holy Spirit telling you? What is the Holy Spirit telling me? What is he telling us as a church? What course correct do we need in order to play our role in standing for truth, and standing up for Christ in the midst of a culture that's deceived by lies? What do we need this Christmas season? Some of us are here knowing the full weight of our sin and the shame that comes with it, and we hang our head in shame. And for us, maybe the next faithful step in fulfilling the Great Commission is actually to lift our eyes and to put them on Jesus, believing that he is able to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that you have done, no thought you have thought, no deed you have done or left undone that Jesus can't forgive. He can forgive it all, and his promise is to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So for some of you, it might be just turn your face toward Jesus and receive his forgiveness. Others of us, we need comfort from Jesus rather than all the other things to which we look for comfort. Others of us need courage. The idea of moving towards somebody and talking to them about Jesus makes us shake in our boots, and we need to know that Jesus is right here with us, willing to comfort us and empower us as we step out in faith and tell somebody about Jesus. We're only one week away from Christmas where each one of us here will likely find ourselves either inviting others into our home or entering other people's homes. I wonder, is it possible that we could enter into the presence of others and be a comforting, a calming, and encouraging presence because Jesus is dwelling with us, in us? Could courage and comfort characterize the conversation around our dinner tables, around the Christmas tree in the living room? I think it can because Jesus had promised to be with us in this. So let's pause, let's pray, let's invite the Holy Spirit to custom tailor this and show us what application looks like for us. Father, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for your wise plan. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh and all the limitations that come with living in a fleshly body and walking this earth as a human. We thank you for his sinless life. We thank you for his selfless sacrifice and laying down that life to make perfect payment for our sins, to make it possible for us to be forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. And we thank you for your wise plan to send the indwelling Holy Spirit to be in us, to be with us, to empower our obedience, to comfort us in our fear and to give us power and courage so that we have confidence, that we can move toward and step into this command that you give us to make disciples, we can do that with confidence, knowing that it doesn't rely on our power and even recognizing that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, we thank you for hearing prayers. We thank you for the ways that you comforted Lorelai. And I pray that you would similarly comfort each man, woman, or child who is in here desperate for for the need of your comfort, for an experience of your comfort. And I pray that you would empower each one of us with your power, with your spirit, to fulfill our obedience, to walk and live a life that's worthy of this gospel by which we're saved. So we thank you and we praise you. We worship you. We offer you ourselves. And we say, have your way in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.